This is the No Dabba Podcast. I'm Brian Hogan. And this evening, I'm joined by Arthur Dohler, software developer and mental health advocate. And Arthur's joining me from Omaha, Nebraska. Thank you very much for taking time out of your evening. Thank you very much for having me on. To start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Uh, sure. I'm a software developer. Um, I have been for going on 15 years now. Um, worked in things as interesting as casino site or websites for casinos and things as boring as banking websites. So uh, a lot of web, uh, but recently been getting to do some fun things with robots, which has been exciting. And what are you doing with robots right now? Um, we had a couple clients looking to do some automation stuff. So I can't actually talk too much about it. I just get to say I get to work with robots. Yay. So. <laughs> okay. Are you doing software or firmware? Uh, doing software programming for them. So like PLC programming and things in like you know, proprietary versions of Fortran and Pascal. Oh, okay. So I would have thought C++ or C or something like that, but no, it's... Yeah, they've got proprietary languages, which is, you know, they've built on top of these things that are what they've been using for decades now, apparently. Interesting. So tonight, we're not going to talk much about software development as such, but we are going to talk about developers and the like. Um, but it's kind of from the focus of mental health. Why are you interested specifically in mental health issues of developers? Well, um, I am a certified crazy person, as I like to say, and I've been grappling with mental health issues basically for my entire life. Um, I was officially diagnosed when I was 15, but I've had these things ever since I could remember, and they've been causing problems in my life and causing problems with relationships and my you know, schoolwork and eventually my job. Um, there are things that I've had to deal with and grapple with. And to me, the biggest problem about it is that we don't talk about these things. We never talk that about them existing. We never talk about them with each other. And we never talk about the way that they affect our lives. And that to me is a tragedy because it means that we're not able to deal with them or able to discuss them like rational adult human adults. We treat them as though they're, something mystical or almost magical or incredibly debilitating and sometimes they are but we treat them as though they're um there are just ways that your brain is broken as opposed to ways that the brain expresses itself and i care a lot about developers being able to do efficient things and be able to develop software that helps the world and it's really hard for us to do that if we keep grappling with have to keep grappling constantly with the things that are going on in our own heads are you working in the field along with the development and the robotic work um i am currently volunteering for uh the open sourcing mental illness um, which is a nonprofit that deals with uh, mental health and tech. Um, I have started a local user group called Omhug, which is the Omaha Mental Health User Group. It's kind of a, a combination uh, peer support group and user group. And I've actually just started a nonprofit with some other people that I'm not quite ready to announce publicly yet, but working on building a community for people in the Omaha area um, with behavioral health and mental health issues. So I'm not a licensed psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I am a advocate, a self-taught learner, um, mostly trying to figure out what the hell is even happening in my own head. Um, and I'm somebody who has a lot of lived experience with the, the particular issue, my particular issues. How common would you say mental health issues are in the general population? And then 
more specifically in the developer population? In the population in the, at large, um, it's one out of every five people is likely to have a mental health challenge or deal with some kind of mental health issue any given year. Over the course of an entire adult's lifetime, 50% of U.S. adults are going to deal with something. And that's just people we know. There are rates of people, you know, people who don't talk about these things because we consider them shameful because there's a stigma. And that means that the rates of people who are undiagnosed, who don't talk about these things and aren't recorded statistically, could be way higher. But then in the developer population, do you, from your experience, um, think it's different than the general population? We have anecdotal data. We don't have a firm official study yet, but anecdotal data says that the rate of mental health challenges in developers is higher than in the general populace. And more importantly, almost more importantly, the types of mental health challenges in the developer community are different than the ones in the general populace. For instance, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which is one of my particular diagnoses, um, is higher in the tech populace than it is in the general populace. Another one that's higher in the tech populace is uh, the autism spectrum disorder. People who have uh, autism, which you know used to include or now includes uh, what they used to call Asperger's. So those diagnoses are higher in tech than they are in the general populace. And that means that we have populations of people who are different than or need to be uh, not dealt with differently, but we need to communicate with them differently. And they have a different experience than the rest of what, you know, what we would call chronically normal people. So do you say it's not talked about a lot? If you turn on NPR or you turn on BBC, you will hear it being talked about more than it used to be in the past. Do you think there has been an improvement over the last number of years? I do. I mean, we've had a, I don't want to say there's a renaissance going on, but right now people are talking about the mental health uh, issues. There's still the social stigma around it, but we're working hard and people, a lot of people are working very hard to help diminish that social stigma. And that, to me, becomes a, a place where we need it. Like it. We're getting better at this, but we need to get even better. We need to arrive at a place where people can have conversations about these things and be open about it without having to feel like they're going to get passed up for a promotion. Because not even necessarily because their boss says, well, I don't want to give the, you know, this promotion to this person, but I know people who've been passed over for promotion because their boss says, I don't want to put more stress on them. And that is a profound misunderstanding of this whole thing. I mean, I went to a, a TED talk in Omaha at uh, University of Nebraska, Omaha recently. The TED, I was a TEDx, and they played a video of a talk that was talking about um, inoculating for depression, like literally giving you like an immunization that prevents a particular stress response that can lead to uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety or depression, you know, various mood disorders. That sounds really helpful, but that mentality of talking about these things is – of talking like we understand how the brain works is problematic and diminishing to people who have to deal with these particular challenges on a daily basis. We still don't know which parts of these things are genetic versus which parts of these things are – and it might even not even be genetic. There are um, 
definite hereditary signs in a lot of these particular diagnoses, but there's not necessarily a genetic component. It could be hereditary via epigenetics. It could be hereditary via microfauna or microflora, excuse me. Um, that we don't know. There's not been a there's been a lot of research, but we still haven't figured this stuff out because the brain is the most complex organism, the most complex machine, the most complex system that we've ever encountered. And that when we start wanting to make these changes, it starts to sound like us doing things like things that have happened in history. Um, like, for instance, the whole trend of for that was going on for a long time with uh, frontal lobotomies for people who are in particular situations. Now that doesn't have, luckily that has nothing to do with a developer's daily experience today, but as someone who struggles with these things, I care a lot about, uh, you know, what I've come to consider my people, the people out there who have a different way of looking at things, a different way of perceiving things, even if that's not, you know, um, psychotically, you know, broken in the sense that you're perceiving reality is fundamentally different than it is but a different perspective on things can be dramatically important for actually a lot of what we do a lot of being innovative a lot of being creative and software at its heart is a creative and innovative enterprise so let's bring it back to software and in particular the office the workplace what kind of issues do you encounter uh, amongst developers um, so we see a lot of different ones. I talked about the, uh, the autism spectrum disorder, um, and autism is a profoundly misunderstood diagnosis. It's getting a lot better now, but in the past, um, a lot of people would consider it to be like, you know, that these people were, um, stuck in their own heads. They were nonverbal, uh, and you know, that they were in the parlance of the time, imbecilic or moronic, um, and a lot of these things we've discovered that autism has a lot to do with sensory input and that it's a lot like almost like a sensory overload in a lot of ways. And we have people like um, Temple Grandin actually to thank for that. Um, she was a nonverbal um, – someone with autism who was nonverbal who learned to communicate. But there are particular – I mean, and, and you'll hear it described also as not being able to feel emotion, not being able to detect emotion, which isn't necessarily true either. It's a, a very subtle distinction between um, each person's experience when they have something like that. A lot of the other things we see are things like uh, mood disorders, um, of which depression is the most common and the most well-known. Um, there's also bipolar disorder, uh, which is kind of like... If you took, you know, d depression and flipped it on its head, you're swinging between two poles. But there's a depressive phase, but then there's also a manic phase. And this manic phase is everything feels great and you're up and you don't want to sleep and you're clean your entire house. And if you have extremely, you know, bad bipolar, um, you can almost lose touch with reality and start going, well, everything's going to be great. So I'm just going to sell my house and all my possessions and buy a boat. And by the time you come out of it, you're like, on the, in the Atlantic halfway to Italy somehow, and you have no idea what you're going to do when you get there, but it, it, uh, you know, it could be a really jarring experience and damaging in, you know, as far as your life. Um, there's also what we call anxiety disorders, which are, you know, general group things like generalized anxiety disorder, which is 
just about what it sounds like that every pretty much everything makes you anxious uh social anxiety which is one i'm i'm sure somebody who's listening has experienced um but it's more than just you know i've, I've had somebody uh, a friend who has very bad social anxiety talk about how her boss once said oh i've got social anxiety because when i get up on stage to talk to a bunch of people i feel anxious and it's like mm, that's that's not what it's like yes everybody feels the butterflies we're talking about you walk into a room and somebody looks at you and then looks back at their friend and they both laugh they think you're laughing at like it, oh, they're laughing at me. It's just a voice in the back of your head. Two people talking and laughing, and they're just you know behind you. Oh, they're joking about me. There's also obsessive compulsive disorder, which is another fundamentally mis or, uh, misunderstood one. There's people under assume that it is about the compulsions because that's what we can see, but it's a lot more about the obsession. And it's about a thought that you can't get rid of, a thought that's abhorrent to you, that you dislike, that you don't want any part of, but you can't help but just ruminate on it over and over and over again. And so the compulsions become this way to stop thinking about it, even for just a short period of time. And unfortunately, it's kind of a lot in a lot of ways like an addiction in that it comes back. You do the compulsion, you feel better for a little bit, and then eventually the obsessive thought comes right back. You touched on something, though, I want to stop you for a moment, on the sort of the long-term versus the temporary. Mm -hmm. So I know you gave the example of the boss who stands on stage and has anxiety or whatever it is, but people will have you know days when they're depressed or days when they're stressed or days when they're anxious. But you've been using terms like social anxiety disorder, um, generalized anxiety disorder. Where is the line between having a, a bad day and having a disorder it is a tough line and the it's made complicated by the fact that the disorders as we describe them aren't anything other than a checklist there's this big thing the book called the the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Behavioral Health, Edition 5. And what it says in it is just a bunch of checklists. It says, okay, here's this particular disorder. How do you get that? Well, you demonstrate that you have, you know, five of seven or seven of nine, you know, the majority of these particular symptoms. These are the things we associate with this disorder. We don't have biological tests or firm ways to say, you know, it's not like diabetes where they can do a glucose test and say, yep, your system is not responding to diabetes, you know, to glucose as it should or sugar as it, yeah. But in these cases, what happens is somebody sitting there diagnosing you. And as you describe, a lot of these things like anxiety or depression are part of that normal human experience, right? So it's about, okay. How long has this experience lasted? What's the intensity of it? Is it starting to get in your way? So there's a subjectivity to it, which comes into play. Is this thing enough to get a diagnosis or not? It starts to be a question. And most importantly, the diagnoses don't matter as much as we tend to think they do. Because as, because those diagnoses are checklists, what that means is that you and I could have the same diagnosis, but to have two very different personal experiences of the way that we experience that particular diagnosis. And so we can't assume that just because somebody has a particular diagnosis, that they have everything in that checklist and that they have the same experience as everyone else we know who has that diagnosis. These things are just buckets that we're trying to 
you know, when we need something to help categorize and classify them, but treating them as more than what they are is a, uh, a road that will lead us to treating everybody who has this particular thing as if we know what they're going through, as if we understand what's happening. So if a person listening, developer listening, recognizes some of the stuff you've been talking about in themselves or in others, what can they do about it? So if we're talking about personally, um, the, what you can do is get help. Uh, there's lots of different places you can go, you know, therapy. Um, there's lots of different tools. You don't have to necessarily always go on drugs, etc. But if we're talking about it in a workplace, then this whole world opens up because we as a people don't have a language to talk about these things. And so we've co-opted this clinical language. We've co-opted the names of these disorders and co-opted these, these behaviors. I've had a, uh, a, a coworker who has um, described herself as OCD and she's not, she's like, emphatically does not have the diagnosis. She doesn't have any of the behaviors. There's no reason. And she doesn't mean it in that way. She's just using it as a parlance for, oh, I just like things in a particular way. And that is damaging. Using the language in that way is damaging because it implies that one, if somebody actually does have that diagnosis, it implies that their experience isn't as important impactful for them as it should be and or as it is you know just like somebody that person who said uh, you know i have social anxiety because i get up on a stage and i get butterflies you're minimizing because you think oh i understand your experience and it's like mm, no you have a pale shadow of what's going on in my head so not that i have diagnosed with ocd but i've spoken with a number of people who've described this experience um very viscerally and so what to me we need to do, the way to get ahead of this and the way to start breaking this thing apart and doing something about it in our workplaces is to have a conversation about it, to actually talk about it, to talk openly about what's going on in our heads. And you don't have to have a diagnosis to do it. Just talking about here is my experience, here is what's going on. And the language we use to do that matters a ton. Because when we start, we can say things like, oh, hey, you know, how's the ADHD today? How's that going? That's one, that's going to get us in trouble with HR. Uh, two, that's not really that helpful. But turning it around and framing it in a different way and using a different type of language can really help us. So let me give you an example. Let's say that I'm talking about a particular patient, and this patient has presented with a severe case of post-traumatic stress disorder that has led to some severe anxiety issues, extraordinary anger management issues, um, an incredible need for a sense of control over the situation, every situation. It has led him to extravagance and overspending. Um, it has led him to a strong obsessive drive to uh, combat that which he has seen in his life to, you know, to fight back against the things that he's seen cause harm and that caused him harm personally. Um, he has extraordinarily tough problems, times, excuse me, extraordinarily tough time making personal connections. He is aloof. He's isolated. This description of somebody sounds very clinical, 
But when we turn it around and I say, well, Bruce Wayne saw his parents brutally murdered in an alley after they were coming out of a Zorro film. And now he takes that and he uses that hatred and that pain to fuel him in his quest for justice going forward. That's a very different story, but they're both the same person. So that first example is that clinical language, that, you know, dry, impersonal, weakness-focused language. And the second one talks about this very personal truth that this person is going through. And it's talking about experience and what we observe and behavior, not putting a label on it necessarily and not judging it. Although, you know, it's pretty easy to look at Batman and do some judging. But um, there's a point where we can have those conversations using that experiential language where we can say things like, hey, I've noticed you've been a little distracted lately. What's going on? That is literally a conversation that my tech lead has had with me at my current workplace where it was, he took me into a room and he said, hey, you, you know, you're usually a really good developer, usually crank out tickets, get a whole bunch of stuff done. You've seemed like you've been distracted. What's going on? You know, you're not producing as much. And he'd noticed before I did, which is often the way of that kind of thing, where you notice somebody else outside of you notices those things before those behavioral things before you do. And I'd let myself get distracted like it happens um, by, you know, a whole bunch of external stuff. But he gave me the chance to realize that he gave me the chance to have it as a conversation and he didn't do it in a way of like he knows i have adhd he didn't come to me and say art stop letting your adhd get in your own way like he said it from a place of concern and empathy and care and and actual you know personal caring about my well-being and that is important being able to turn it around and saying that let me have a you know a moment to self-correct at, a, at another workplace, that could have dragged on. He could have avoided conflict because we try to avoid conflict defensively in some places um, until it became a point where I had to suddenly get put you know, with an official reprimand and potentially put on like a performance improvement plan. I can guarantee you – like a generalized anxiety is another one of my particular diagnoses. If you come at me from the blue, out of the blue with something like that, I am not going to improve. I am on a downward spiral because you've just given me a whole bunch of feedback that my brain is now going to tell me all kinds of things about how I am fucking awful and I'm a terrible developer and everything is bad and you should just quit anyway. And so I'm on this downward spiral and that's only going to end with me getting fired or leaving. And he avoided that with a single conversation. There's another person that I met recently who was talking about um, – and he, he works for a, a, a local bank in Omaha, a, federal, a, a credit union. And he was talking about one of his particular salespeople where she was a, like a, a salesperson, just really knocking it out of the park. And then she started dropping things, not making sales, not making numbers. And, you know, that could be a place where you pull somebody to your office and say, you know, you have to shape up, get this, you know, you got to do more sales, just do the thing better. And instead he took it and he, again from that place of caring sat down and said what's going on and it turned out her daughter had cancer like 
yes, obviously she's distracted. So he gave her the space to deal with that in her personal life. You know, we talk about there's this almost ideal in the in in the U.S. especially that we leave stuff outside of work, outside of work. It's like we just can dump all that baggage at the door, which is totally nonsensical. You can't. There's just even if you're not thinking about it, there's your subconscious. You know, there's some degree of cognitive load taken up by something that traumatic in your life. In the examples you've given, it sounds like the the people that were able to help had personal relationships, let's say friendly relationships with their co-workers, but that's not always the case in companies. It does absolutely help if you've demonstrated that you personally care about your coworker, at least outside of um, the boundary. It doesn't have to be to an extreme, but at least some degree of, I care about you personally and your outcome. But it's not necessarily essential. Using those moments to talk about, hey, is something a problem, can be an opening to actually start that conversation, to start showing that you do actually care about them. It gives them a chance to explain their story, and that matters a lot because if you see somebody and you see them behaving in a particular way, like for instance, um, there was a previous job where a coworker would fall asleep at work. And I mean, literal head back snoring, like in his desk chair. And of course we made fun of him for it. Like, Oh, he must've been up all night playing, you know, whatever. And none of us ever actually asked him what was going on. And I regret that because that would have been a place to go, look, something's clearly happening. You know, we've seen you fall asleep. We've noticed what's going on. You know, what is your story? We made up a story in our heads. And if we can't provide a story to our coworkers, they'll do the same. They will make up something that I guarantee will be worse than whatever the reality is, because that's just kind of how the brain works. It's not that we're terrible people. It's just that's we tend to, you know, reduce other people to their attributes that we see. So that kind of relationship can be started by this conversation and obviously you will have coworkers, you'll have people if you try to have this conversation they will shut it down they don't want to talk about it they don't want to provide their story they don't want to be any part of it and that's okay right like that's their prerogative to say i don't want to talk about this and similarly if you don't want to talk about your mental state you don't have to but my advocation is that when we do this it starts to cause a change in the workplace when we're having those conversations um we can run into this problem of crisis and that's the thing i wanted to ask you about next the i suppose the first step would be how would you identify let's say the difference that something that is a crisis as opposed to what we've been talking about so far like a general anxiety um what what would you even call a crisis Crisis is kind of tough because it is a personal experience, and that means that if somebody's – the only person you can really say if they're in a crisis or not is the person. But typically when we say something like crisis, we're talking about an extremely depressive streak. We're talking about a panic attack. We're talking about something like a psychotic break where you are no longer perceiving reality as everyone else is perceiving it. And 
those moments can be terrifying both for the person who is experiencing it and everyone else around them because you don't know what's going on. If somebody's sitting there hyperventilating and you know they're half choking on their own tears and they can't breathe, that's not like what do you do about that? Like that you you as an as a human, you have an instinctive desire to want to help in some way, but you necessarily you can't. And when we see that kind of thing in crisis, it's, it, we have a desire to panic as well. When somebody is coming at us with a particular emotional state, we have these things called mirror neurons in our prefrontal cortex that mirror you know, what we think other people are experiencing. And that causes us to respond in the same kind of emotional vein. If somebody comes to us and they're excited and, you know, hyperventilating, then we're going to kind of get amped up and hyperventilated too, you know, or if they're angry, we're going to respond with anger. Um, The key thing when we encounter somebody in crisis is really to look at them and say, okay, I can't necessarily help. There are some tricks and techniques that you can use. There's a a course called mental health first aid that will help you. Um, It's free in the U S it's an eight hour course. Um, If you go up to like Google, the mental health first aid site, you can sign up for training Um, and it will teach you what is basically first aid for the brain. Like if you have somebody who's in a state where they're disconnected from reality or have somebody who's in an extremely depressive state, like what are the signs of somebody contemplating suicide? That's a thing we don't like to talk about. And especially if a coworker is coming to us and talking about how depressed they are and they're just in the slump and they can't seem to get out of it. We have this terror of actually asking them, you know, are you contemplating suicide? And I mean, they're not, trust me, if they are in a state where they have bad enough depression, they're already thinking about it. Like it's in their head. You're not going to put it there, but coming back and just saying, not assuming that anybody is safe and not assuming that anybody isn't safe. Just asking them, are you contemplating suicide? You know, are you okay? Do you need help? Like those moments and asking them can, is really all we can do as far as crisis goes. Because we don't necessarily want to just call 911 at the first sign of somebody having a panic attack or having, um, even worse, if they're having you know a, that disconnect from reality, that's the kind of situation where somebody can literally be shot or killed because police are not necessarily trained well in how to handle those situations, um, especially when they can't tell necess- if somebody is having a psychotic moment or if they're hyped up on drugs or it – you're basically putting people with guns into the situation with somebody who's in a a highly agitated mental state. It doesn't often end well. Obviously, if you have concerns for your safety or others' safety, you should go ahead and call. But it's, you know, you want to not leap to that as the first thing you do. What can we, let's say, as software developers, software companies, software industry, do to prevent people from, you know, having let's say, the the earlier issues we talked about or the crisis that you, you just mentioned? So one of the best things we can do is to have those conversations. If we can talk about these things before they turn into big blow-ups, if we can have these things before they turn into me shouting at somebody else because we haven't, and now it's a big personal thing, 
or, you know, talk about, hey, I feel like I'm starting to get disconnected from the team. I feel like I'm starting to become anxious about my status and how I'm performing. Can you help me, you know, give me some feedback? If we can't have those conversations, that leads us to bottle those things up until they blow up in our faces. And so the nicest thing about having these conversations is that it offers the opportunity for us to be vulnerable. And what I mean by that is it when I come out and say, look, I'm having this problem. Can you help me in this particular way? Right. I'm having a problem focusing or I'm having a problem, you know, engaging in this or having a problem with this particular task because it's really setting off my anxiety for some reason. Is there a way, you know, can you help me by doing this thing that opens the door for that person to come back around and say, I need some help, too at a different place. And it means even if it's nothing to do with mental health, even if it's something like I, you know, where your daughter has cancer, those moments where you can say, look, I've got something else going on in my life and I can't, I need to lean out of work a little bit. You know, the team can pick up the slack. Can the team pick up the slack that offers the opportunity for somebody else to come back and say, look, I need the team to pick up a little bit of slack because I'm going through something. It actually improves the resilience of our teams and that kind of emotional connection increases cohesion in our teams, which is an essential like element of core functioning teams is this group cohesion where we all are pulling in the same direction and feel like we have a common goal. And if we can get to the point where we feel like we have a common goal together, there, it's amazing how many cognitive biases and problems just stop happening because we feel like we're all pulling in the same direction and we feel like we can trust each other to do what's best to get us to that goal. For the, the more, let's say, the stress, anxiety, the, not the clinical depression, but let's say day-to-day kind of thing, what about advocating for people taking all their vacation, not working excess hours, not being on call 24 hours a day, checking their email at the weekends, things like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, do none of those things. <laughs> um, well, except taking a vacation. Yeah, no, take all your vacation. Um, so you have company. Like, you have people who think that they shouldn't, or that they won't, or whatever it is. Right. I mean, and that's. That, don't get me wrong. I have coworkers, even myself, who love working, and that's kind of what they do with their life, which is that can be okay, but. For a lot of us, we need those breaks. We need those moments of, I am disconnecting from this thing. I'm disengaging from these, this thing. And actually, that kind of thing can help us be more effective. Um, I'm in the middle of Daniel Pink's win, and he's talking about the benefits of actually going to lunch. Like, did not... Doing any like not eating at your desk, going and doing something over lunch. And I've been an advocate for a long time of uh, going and playing board games over lunch with my coworkers. Uh, so I, you know, this is confirmation bias heaven. It's like, yay, I have all the evidence I need now. But those moments of being able to go, okay, do what you can to have your own particular work-life balance. Find where that place is. Maybe it means a little extra hours. I typically work a little over a week, like something like 40, 40, 45-ish, 44-ish hours, just a little over, like not a ton, just because I find myself getting sucked into problems and I'll solve something and that's great. It's That's where my balance kind of lies. It's kind of like, you know, how much sleep do you need a night? It varies from person to person, but it's around this amount, right? That 
finding those things and engaging with them intentionally as a way to help yourself be a better developer, be a better person. Those are important, right? Being able to connect with your family and making sure you take time to do that. Being able to um, take those hours of vacation and go do something that will energize you and bring you back with a particular set of rested stuff. But creativity actually is requires us disengaging like this there's this whole concept of incubation right where it's uh your subconscious is chewing on something even when you're not thinking about it actively as only when you're not thinking about it actively and then you know whenever your brain gets bored like for instance the shower which is why we have so many thoughts in the shower you know is because your brain is just like i'm terribly bored in here Okay, what are we thinking? Like, here's a solution to something. We were thinking about this last week. Done. Like, that's what, that's literally how we have thoughts, how we solve problems creatively and innovatively is by taking those moments to be not doing something. And so, I mean, and if you can go talk to, uh, if you're lucky enough to work with people in, you know, the user experience field or the user design field, um, they will tell you straight up that that is a very important part of their work. And I think we don't treat software as if it is creative but it is very much a creative enterprise and we need to treat it as though it is a creative enterprise so that will also as a bonus help us disconnect and be less stressed help us find a balance in our particular lives at work you know any final notes before we wrap up for the evening arthur I do want to, to name drop again, uh, OSMI, the Open Sourcing Mental Illness. They have a number of handbooks, um, including how to have a, uh, like your workplace, how to have a workplace that um, is supportive. It has a handbook for your rights under like ADA as a employee, if you have a particular mental health challenge. Um, I also want to call out if you, you know, I feel like I have to, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, which is 1-800-273-8255. And it doesn't have to just be suicide. Any emotional distress, they're there for you. So, um, You mentioned also the Mental Health First Aid course. Yep. uh, You can find that at mentalhealthfirstaid.org. And if you're in the Omaha area listening to this, I would love to have you drop into uh, Omhug sometime. Uh, We're on what? Sorry. The Omaha Mental Health User Group. Okay. Uh, and you can find us on uh, meetup.com. Brilliant. Arthur Dolder, thank you very much for your time this evening. Thank you very much for having me. I had a great time. If you like this episode, you might also like episode 56 with Suparna Damini on repetitive strain injuries or episode 35 with John Sonmez on soft skills where we also talk about physical and mental health.
The opening music was returned by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was Sugar Doesn't Replace You At All by Livio Amato from the album Oltre Amare. 